Okay, well, I'm going to be bold and ask everyone to uh, please be seated, because um, I prepared too much material, but I don't have the courage to cut anything, so I'm going to talk fast. So good morning, everyone. Chosen by God, you are. So I'd like to go ahead and start. We'll start off with just a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, Father, we come to you and we thank you for this glorious day that you've given to us. And we thank you for this word from Peter. And we hope that it will be encouragement to us as we look to our lives in the 21st century and we reflect back on our brothers and sisters from the first century and the challenges that they face and how we can use those challenges to encourage us as we go forward in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. No, I was going to say um, a couple things. One is we're starting this new class today, and Ronnie is going to be the first of about six or seven other teachers who are going to come one in succession. And so I think Ron Bailey is next week. Is that right, Ron? Ron is next week, and then there's several others who are going to teach after that. And then I wanted to give you this in case you have slides you're going to advance. Okay. 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 Okay, thank you. So, thank you. So, I must be eager to jump ahead of the uh, introduction. So, forgive me for that. But uh, I wanted to, do, to get, get started here, and I'll do my best to uh, move us forward and allow for questions, but um, bear with me here. So, the, uh, yeah, there's the agenda. You can tell who operates the remote in my family. Um, Okay, this is the only slide that I'm going to use. And effectively, this is pretty standard. You go into a Bible or you go into a book and you start talking about, well, who wrote what, when did they do it, and what was the, the basis for it. But I think this is going to be really pertinent as we think of 1 Peter. So in 64 AD, around July 19th, Rome burned. It burned to the ground. It was a severe fire, and about 14 of the 17 districts in all of Rome burned because it was built largely out of wood. The only parts that didn't burn was the Palace of Nero at the time. And thousands of people died, and hundreds of thousands of people, or tens of thousands of people, lost their home. And it's said, anecdotally, that, you know, you may have heard this, Nero played his fiddle, Right? While Rome burned, I don't actually think he played a fiddle, he played a harp maybe. But he was a musician, he was a writer, he was a builder, and he wanted to rebuild Rome, is what he was hoping to do. So as he looked at the flames, it said that what he said was, oh, look at these beautiful flames, they remind me of flowers. And he was excited about that. And when the population found out that he was happy, that their homes had burned to the ground, they began to rebel, and they began to riot. And so what transpired was he needed to find a scapegoat. And that scapegoat were the Christians. Because the Christians, Christians at the time were actually viewed, you may be surprised to hear this, they were viewed as the atheists. The atheists. Why? Because they didn't accept the Roman pantheon of gods. Okay. So they were viewed as the atheists. In fact, Tacitus writes to us in around 90 A.D., now, uh, he writes saying that Christians, to start uh, Nero's persecution of them, to blame them for the fire, that they were accused of cannibalism because they ate 
man's flesh and they drank his blood. They were accused of being sexually immoral because they had love feasts where they came together and they greeted each other with kisses. Imagine, this is Rome saying you're immoral. Okay? And they believed that the world was going to be destroyed by fire. And so what they did was, Tacitus and Nero, and not Tacitus, but Nero, was that the Christians started the fire because they wanted to bring about the destruction of the world as, you, as they knew it. So, they, so that they could bring um, the beginning of the Christian age. And this was around 64 A.D., And for the next 250 years, Christianity was persecuted. Our brothers and sisters, at the beginning of of our belief in God, were persecuted. And they died horrible deaths. But for the next 300 years, the Christian church grew. And it grew more, and it grew stronger, and it grew faster than anything that has occurred in the 1700 years since. And it didn't grow by the sword as some religions do. It didn't grow because it had political power where you could establish a religion and force everyone to believe this. And it didn't grow because it was creating some social utopia where everyone's going to be the same and aren't we all going to be happy. It grew on the death of saints. I think it's fair to call them that because they were sanctified, set apart. It grew through persecution and the response of our brothers and sisters, our forebearers, was love. And that is how it grew. And this occurred in 64 AD. And so Peter is responding and he's writing to the churches in in Turkey, basically, northwest Turkey today. And he's writing to them not to tell them how to escape, how to get away. But he's writing to them to prepare them He's writing to encourage them. He's writing so that they will have the strength to endure the persecution that's going to come upon them. Now, 2 Peter, I'll just briefly speak about 2 Peter. 2 Peter is written a few years later, 66 or 67 AD. had to be written before Peter died. But it's addressing a different issue. It's addressing the issue of heresy within the church. Now notice, 1 Peter is about external hostilities to the church. And the church grows when we are persecuted externally. But the church falters when we have heresy. And we have heresies. We have heresies today. We don't have so much persecution today here in Canada. And we're blessed. But that's not true around the world. If you're familiar with Open Doors, they tell us that... um, On a 12-month rolling average as of March of 2019, 4,136 Christians have been killed because they bear the name Christian. 1,266 churches are attacked or have been destroyed. That's three and a half churches every day. 11 people per day are dying. These are Christians. This is if we went into their assembly, we would hear them singing hymns that we might actually recognize. We might not know the words, but we might recognize it. I don't know if you've ever been in a foreign country and have been in a foreign service and listened to a song by Christians and you know the melody. Anywhere with Jesus. And, but it's not in English. But doesn't it warm your heart? 2,625 individuals have been arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. That's seven a day. 
From 2017 to 2018, persecution of the church has increased 14%. From 215 million people to 245 million people. That's more than seven times the population of Canada. This is happening today. And a few weeks ago, we heard about this horrible incident that occurred in New Zealand, right? But did you know in that same time period, from February to March, of 20, uh, March 15th of 2019, the Christian Post tells us that 120 Christians were killed in Nigeria because they bear the name Christian. This is occurring today. Persecution is happening. We don't experience here, thank God, but I think it's fair to say the social mores have changed in this culture. So, who is this person who writes First Peter? Well, it's like asking you, what color is your blue shirt? It's blue, right? It's Peter. Peter was of the inner circle of, of Christ, him and James and John. He wasn't called Peter, though, when he was born. He was called Simeon. And Simeon actually means a reed. In Aramaic, it means, you know, something that flops back and forth. It's not stable. It's not uh, strong. Uh, and we see that in Peter. Peter was a, a, a warm fella. He was a happy fella. They call him the big fisherman, according to tradition. And he was the first to step out, you know, and say, hey, let's go do this. Let's go bowling. Oh, why would I want to do that, Peter? You know. But he was the first to step out and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know, he said, who else do we go to? You have the words of life. He was the one who said, on Pentecost, it's by your sins that you have, com- you have killed the son of God. So he, he would often have foot and mouth disease, right? At the same time, he said, Jesus, you are the son of, of, of God, the anointed Later on, he's telling him, no, you can't go. I just said you're the son of God, but no, you can't go and be crucified. So he has to be corrected. Of course, he's famous for denying Christ, right? He said, just before that, he said, Jesus, I'm willing to die for you. Are you, Peter? Before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then he denies him three times. So this is Peter, Simon. But Jesus changes his name. He changes him to Cephas which means a rock. You're not going to be that anymore. And then we know him as Peter, as Petros. And that is, in Greek, that means rock. We know that he's married. He had a wife, because Peter healed his mother-in-law. And that the, the tradition is that his wife went with him as he traversed Asia. Uh, not the Orient, but Turkey, and to Rome that she went with him, and that when he was crucified, she was brought to his crucifixion. In fact, the pattern was that they would crucify the wife first, or kill the wife first. So he got to see his wife die before he died. And the saying is, he cried out to her. He said, the Lord is good. So what is he doing here? He's trying to write to Christians to encourage them for the persecution that's going to come. Now, he's a Jew. You know, he was a Jew. And he was told to associate with Gentiles that they're okay. But Jesus, God had to tell him how many times? Three times before he would accept Gentiles. 
But now you have a Jewish fisherman living in Rome, Babylon, as it's called, Rome, which is a Gentile city. He gives himself a Gentile name. He calls himself Petros when he signs the letter. He's writing to Gentiles in Middle East and Turkey, and he calls them a Jewish name. He calls them the, the diaspora. Now, the diaspora was a name that the Jerusalem Jews called the Jews who never came back from Babylon. They were scattered abroad. And so what he's trying to convey to the Christians there is that you are far from home. You are scattered abroad. Even though you're living in your land, that is your home, that is not your home. Now, Paul tells us our citizenship is in in heaven. And again, all of this, take this as you listen, think about how he's trying to encourage them for the persecutions that's going to come. You know, I didn't really mention very much about the persecutions that Nero brought. But first, they were arrested, the Christians, and they were executed. Typically, that meant cutting off your head if you're a Roman citizen. Next, he found ways in which to create more pleasure out of it, enjoyment for the audience. He'd wrap them in animal skins and have them crawl around in in the Colosseum or the arenas and set his wild dogs on them. And then finally, to illuminate his barbecue parties, he would dip them in tar and bitumen. We're familiar with that. And then light them on fire as they were tied to a pole and they were alive. These Christians were going to be persecuted in a way we have no concept. And he's trying to encourage them. And they were normal people, husbands and wives, slaves, probably the lower rungs of society. And he wants them to know that God has chosen them and that what they're going to go through is going to be worth it. And so essentially he's preparing them and he wants them to be strong in their salvation because if you're not strong in your salvation, you won't stand up to persecution. You won't have the confidence to. How can you if you doubt? And so we start off in uh, reading Peter and just read the first couple of verses. He says, Peter, an apostle, and interesting, that name apostle in the Greek means someone who's come to take land. He's a military leader coming to take land, to capture. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, strangers of this world scattered in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctified according to the work of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus, and the sprinkling of his blood. Grace and peace be to you in abundance. That is a beautiful greeting. There's so much in there that you could take the whole class, and I put too much here, so I'm going to... But you could take the whole class just on those two verses there. Because he says, first off, what makes you different? You've been selected by God. From the foreknowledge of God, you have been elected. It's not an accident that you're a Christian. You're chosen. You're special. So yes, you're going through persecution, but it's not because you 
deserve it. It's not because you're a misfit. It's not because you're not wanted. It's because God chose you. That should give confidence to them. That should give confidence to us. Next, he tells us that we're sanctified through the Spirit. And this sanctification through the Spirit is, you know, we tend to think of this, I chose Jesus because I recognized something wrong within me. And therefore, the Holy Spirit came upon me, and I'm now working my way towards salvation. But that's not what Peter says here. He says, God, in his foreknowledge, elected you, and then the Spirit sanctifies you to obedience in Christ. So the Holy Spirit is playing a role here. He convicts us of our sin. We recognize that we need this salvation. We respond to the Holy Spirit. And then our life after our regeneration is this process of sanctification. There's your $25 word. But it's effectively meaning how are we going to grow in our love for the Lord? How are we going to change our behavior? We're already saved. When we're convicted of sin and we're regenerate, you're saved. You are justified, Paul tells us. And then our work, along with the Holy Spirit, is our sanctification for obedience in Jesus. Jesus tells us over and over again, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But it's not for our salvation. It's so that we grow in the image of God. So he says, one, you were selected by God. Two, you're sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And you're sprinkled by blood. Jesus' blood. Now, that should remind you. That should draw back to your mind. Why does he say sprinkled? He doesn't say baptized. Does he say that we should therefore be sprinkled rather than baptized? No, that's, that's a whole different topic. What he's doing is he's drawing on the Old Testament. Do you recall in the Old Testament what was sprinkled? The tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant. You know, you take a bull... You'd cut its throat, you'd take some of the blood, the high priest would go in, and to consecrate the Ark of the Covenant, he'd sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. He'd sprinkle blood on the veil that separated the holies from holies. He would put blood on the menorah and on the showbread, a table of showbread, and on the altar of incense. And then he would go outside, and on blood, he'd put the blood on the horns of the altar for burnt offerings. He'd take some of that blood, and he'd put it on his right earlobe, and he'd put it on his right thumb, and he'd put it on his right toe. I have no idea why. But the point is that he was consecrated. He was anointing these profane items so that they would be holy, undefiled before God. And here, Peter is saying, you have been, a, you have been sprinkled with the blood of God, with the blood of Jesus. And so we should take those They took those. We should take those as encouragements to us. We're chosen by God, we're sanctified, and we're anointed. And so that, again, this is meant to encourage us, to give us strength to endure the persecution. And then he goes on after this wonderful introduction. He says, now praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in his great mercy he has given us a new birth, and to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
and to an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, that is kept for you in heaven, you know, where moth and rust and the thief never comes in. And you, he says, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in those last times. And in this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. And these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you love him and believe in him. Not love him. You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Again, he's writing to Christians who are about to be persecuted or are being persecuted. And all of this is an encouragement to them. But I want to draw your attention to that very first part. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy. This is a wonderful blessing. Do you know why? Does God owe us mercy? Does God owe us grace? What does grace mean? Unmerited favor. What is mercy? Unmerited favor. It's a free gift from God that he gives to us. If God chose to not give us this mercy and judge us according to our behaviors and we were then condemned because we'd rebelled against him, he would be perfectly just and righteous to do that. Would he not? And yet, he's merciful. At the end, Peter is going to say, you know, you've come to see how the Lord tastes good. The Lord is good. And it's this mercy is the beginning of these wonderful blessings. We don't deserve any of this. And yet he's given this to us. So in that, we have an inheritance. He tells us we have an inheritance. It's in heaven. It won't perish, spoil, or fade. And it's kept for you. When you go to heaven, when you die, you get an inheritance. Usually when you only get inheritance when somebody dies and you get something from them. But here, when you die, you're going to receive an inheritance. And that's to be transported right into the presence of God. And that gift will not perish, spoil, or fade. So we have this beautiful inheritance that's waiting for us. And not only that, we're protected to get that. He says it's the power of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are being reserved to go to heaven to receive that. And so, we have an inheritance He continues on in saying, though for now, for a little while, you may have to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. But he says, these are being brought so that it can show your faith to be genuine. You know, the the church, the early church, went through the fire. And I think what you actually had then was you had a very strong church. They knew, okay, I'm going to go to prison and maybe suffer a horrible death, I better be sure that this book is true. They believed it, and so they committed themselves to it. But there was a problem in the early church. There were those who were afraid, those who denied Christ, those who said, no, Caesar is Lord, 
Jesus is not Lord. And then how do you bring those back into the church? Do you bring those back in the church? You know. We won't go down that path. Just a little toss that out there for you to, to study if you'd like. You know, what did the church do to them? Um, but a tested faith. You know, you only grow when you go through, grow, go through hardship. That's the only time. You know, when you first get married, it's great. Is it not? First week, <laughs> nothing better. First month, it's still going good. Six months, there's the one little thing I don't like, but that's okay. A year, two years, three years, and you start learning all the foibles of the other person. And they learn all your foibles. They realize that, I won't go into it, but they realize you're not perfect. And you realize they're not. But when you come to situations that stress your marriage, don't you grow? Don't you grow in knowing your spouse? That they're committed to you, that you may be, you may fervently disagree, but you're committed to the goal of staying together. So you grow, and that marriage vow grows in strength. I once heard this, this, uh, was, uh, this couple who had been married, I think 65, 67 years. The guy was 90, and the wife was 89. And the, the person asked, well, did, didn't you ever have problems? Didn't you ever think of divorce? And he said, no. Murder, Yes. Okay, But they obviously went through some hard times. And everyone who's married knows you go through this. And that's what makes you strong. And the testing of our faith, he says, is going to make us strong so that we can withstand the challenges that are before us. And that's a blessing. Because if you've never had your faith tested, you'll never know if you can withstand it. He also says that we are born into a living hope. So we have a new devotion. He tells us that even though we haven't seen Jesus, we love Jesus. Even though we don't know him, we believe in him. So we love Jesus. Why? Because God first loved us. It's not because we loved him first. He loved us first. And so let that draw us to him. That Jesus loved us, gave his life for us when we were unworthy. And so we focus our attention upon him. We have a new devotion. You know, we, we stop hanging out with the same old people. It's like when you get married, right? You stop hanging out with your old friends. And they, yeah, you used to be a cool dude, but now you're always at home. You know, but sorry, I'm being a little sarcastic. But, you know, you, you focus on Christ now, and he guides us in that. We have a new devotion to him. And so, you know, we love Jesus, and we love God because they first loved us. So we bless and we praise God the Father that in his great mercy... He has given us a new birth into a living hope through Jesus Christ, resurrection from the dead. Now, there's some great privileges that we have here. And I'm going to skip over 10 to uh, uh, 12. But essentially, what Peter there is pointing out is that the prophets of old only had pieces of the story. And yet we have the entire revelation in front of us. Some of them only knew about Christ and where he would be born, Bethlehem. And that's all they knew. Some knew he was going to be born of a virgin. Another one knew that, you know, he was going to be, uh, 
have to flee to Egypt. Another knew that he was going to be, his hands and feet were going to be pierced. Another knew that he was going to um, rise on the third day. But they didn't have all of that together. You know, if you were uh, Micah, all you knew, oh, Bethlehem, that's all I know. I don't know anything else about him. You know, maybe Isaiah knew the most. Because Isaiah 53. But that was it. We have the whole word in front of us. We can see the entire revelation of God. How blessed we are to live in A.D. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Not C.E., the common error. We have the whole scripture in front of us. And he even tells us that angels long to look at this. You know the difference between us and angels? There's many differences. They're faster. They don't die. They're beautiful. They're stronger. They're more intelligent. But they don't see Jesus as Savior. He doesn't save them. Hebrews tells us, to whom of the angels did he say, you're my son? We see Jesus as our Savior, as our brother, as our Redeemer. They don't see him as that. They only see him as king. How blessed we are. How blessed we are. And so, with, those, with that, we do have responsibility as Christians. And continuing on, in 1 Peter kind of 13 to verse 22, these are some of the responsibilities we have. Peter writes, therefore. Now, whenever you see the word therefore in Scripture, what does that mean? means a conclusion. It means therefore. <laughs> therefore. Now I don't think he's referring to angels look upon this because angels look upon this, therefore we're going to do such and such. Or that because you're receiving the goal of your salvation, therefore, I think that's part of it. I think it actually encapsulates the entire thought. It says, because you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and you've been sanctified through the holy work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Therefore, prepare your mind. I like the King James Version. It says, gird up your loins. Do you remember where that phrase comes from? Job. What did God say to Job when he came in the whirlwind? Gird up your loins, Job, and stand up. I'm going to talk to you like a man. It's action. In today's parlance, it's roll up our sleeves and we're going to work. And so what he is saying here, therefore, because of this salvation that you have, prepare your minds for action. Meaning, you're going to have to make choices. It's not about how you feel. It's about what you choose to do. How do you manage those behaviors? So he says, be self-controlled. And the only way you can be self-controlled is if you are sober-minded if you know what is right and wrong, if you have an anchor, he tells us later on, set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. We're, the Hebrew writer tells us that we're to fix our eye on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we can run the race that's set before us with perseverance. So you fix your goal on Christ, knowing that he's coming, so you're going to exercise self-control over your Desires, because he tells us we're to be obedient, like obedient children. 
Do not conform yourselves to the evil desires when you lived in ignorance. Now notice the dichotomy is being drawn here. That which we choose and that which we want. C.S. Lewis tells us we think rationally, but our passions are in our stomach. And he says we need Christians who have chests, men of chests, meaning you have the confidence and the self-control to choose that which is right. I've heard the phrase over and over again. When you have a fork in the road that you have to make a decision, usually the hard way is the right way. Because what we want is what we want. I want to do such and such. I know this is wrong, but I want to do this. How many of you have ever gone on a diet? I know I should not eat. You know, I come home. My daughter makes these chocolate muffins, and she knows how to make it right at 5.30 when we get home. It's warm. It's great out of the oven. And I'm trying to be responsible. And she says, hi, Dad. And I can smell. And boy, I tell you what. I want those chocolate muffins. They're warm. You can smell them. But my mind is saying no. But my desire is saying yes. And typically, that's what we run into here. And he's saying, no, you have to exercise self-control as obedient children. Do not conform yourself to the evil desires. That's your passions that you once had when you lived in ignorance. Because in ignorance, I didn't know it was wrong to sin. I didn't know I shouldn't commit adultery. Why can't I do that? But now, as a Christian, you know you're not supposed to. You're supposed to exercise self-control. Time flies. Um, So obedience, holiness. He goes on to say that since you call on the Father, oops, sorry, jumped ahead, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. And what does it mean to be holy? It means to be separate. It means to be consecrated. It means to be upright, to be godly, to be righteous. God is holy. And so we have to learn to be holy. And you can't be holy if you don't act holy. You can't be holy in your mind and live like the world. You can't be a carnal Christian. Those are a contradiction in terms here. And he says, be holy. You know, Paul tells us, you know, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's praiseworthy, think on those things. You know, love, um, Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. I know this backwards, but anyway, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control, faithfulness. That's what we do to learn to be holy. We incorporate those into our life and we make a choice. I'm going to be patient with this person. I'm not going to bite their head off. You know, answer a fool according to his folly and you'll be like him. Answer a fool as his folly requires. Unless he thinks he's wise in his own eyes. That takes wisdom. That takes self-control. There's lots of people out there that ought not to speak. But that takes self-control, and we have to choose to do that. And that we're to conduct ourselves with confidence towards God and fear. He says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. That doesn't mean towering and cowering in trepidation, but it means with respect. This is God the creator. He is perfectly good. There is no turning of shadow in him. And he says, 
with reverence and fear. So initially when we come to God, you may think, well, you know, I can't lie, I can't steal, I can't murder, I can't uh, commit adultery. Um, you know, all these things I'm not going to do. I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that. But what happens is, as you grow in your faith and as you mature and as you grow in your love towards, towards Christ and you realize the goodness of God, you turn over here and you say, you know, I want to be honest. I want to help my brothers and sisters in Christ because I love them because Christ loved me. You know, at first, you know, don't forsake the assembling of the saints, you know, writer says in Hebrews. But now you move towards, and this is a progress, this is sanctification. You move towards, I want to be in church because I want to be there to worship God. Do you see the transition that I'm referring to here? This is what we're talking about, fear of God, with reverent fear. You don't, you don't continue this, well, you know, God, you're such a killjoy, but I won't do this. No, you say, God, you are merciful, and you gave me eternal life. You've given me a new birth into a living hope, and therefore I want to do this because I want to do this. It's like your children. You want to give them everything. You really do. You know you shouldn't, but you want to. It's that kind of fear that we're moving towards out of respect. You don't want to disappoint God. And so he goes on to say, for you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and defect. And so gratitude, a responsibility we have is to turn to God in gratitude. Now, you might not remember this name. His name was Richard Vembrand. He was a Christian uh, during the communist era before the wall came down. It was very quickly after World War II. And he stood up and said, communism and Christianity are incompatible. And so he went to prison. He was persecuted, tortured. And eventually some Christians in Europe rose money and redeemed him. I chose that word, redeemed him. You could say, well, they paid you know, to get him out, about $10,000. But they redeemed him. And he said, I will always be grateful to those who redeemed me. What are you worth? Are you worth $10,000? You know, I, I was reading a thing. I have kids, so I find out these things are curious, are interesting to me. It costs about $200,000 to have a child and raise them up to when they're 18. <laughs> At a minimum, right? You know, is that what you're worth, $200,000? You know, if you were just, uh, if we were to take you and remove all the water, uh, you'd be worth about five bucks, kind of a box of detergent. You know, the sodium, the potassium. Are you worth five bucks? You know. If you need a heart, it costs you about $1.4 million. That's a going rate. You need a lung, $800,000. But what are you worth? He tells us, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from this empty way of life handed down 
from you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, you are worth the, 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 the blood of Christ. You know, this is God incarnate. This is God. He becomes incarnate. He creates a body. God the Father has a body made for him. God the Son brings the body to him. You think he cares about that body? Absolutely. Because in that body, Hebrews tells us that he is the, he is the radiance of God's glory. He's the express image of God. He cares for his body. He's like us in all things. And yet, he allowed that body to die. And when we see him again, he's going to come physically and we're going to see his body. He's going to have that body for all eternity. He cares about that body. We are so valuable. You are so valuable that he, did, he gave up his blood for you. We are valuable. So not with, imperish, not with imperishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for our sake. And through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. So we should be grateful. This should bring gratitude in our heart. You know, I've heard the Christian message, message is this. One, if you don't realize you're guilty, you're not going to appreciate the gospel, the good news. So you've got to realize you're guilty. Two, grace. God, through his infinite grace. Remember, in the beginning, God, in his great mercy, has given us a new birth into a living hope. Grace. And the third is we live a life of gratitude. We say, thank you, God. Help me, God. I am a sinner. Why you loved me, I don't know. And yet you saved me. And he saves us from the futility of our life. What is this futility of our life? He says here, you know, from the, uh, he redeemed us from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. What is this futility of life? You know, if you actually listen to what's taking place today, most people think that this is all we have. Nihilism is the fancy word for it. It means nothing. It means meaningless. And if you think about it, if you're going to be a real atheist, you came from nothing, and you're going to go to nothing. And all this in the middle, what can it be but nothing? You're a cosmic accident, to quote Richard Dawkins, you're a cosmic accident from a universe that never had you in mind to begin with. That's not the Christian method, message. The Christian message is that you are valuable. God foreknew you. He chose you. He sanctified you. And he came and he gave his blood for you. And he's got an inheritance for you in heaven to take you there. You see how this is, is an encouragement if you're being persecuted? And so, he saves us from meaninglessness, from purposelessness, from valueless. You know, suicides are increasing among teenagers and young adults. Why? We live in the richest country in the world. We have more money. We have more cars. We have more houses. We have more clothes. We have more food. We have more weight. We, have, we just have everything. And yet why? When they do the surveys, they say it's because they feel that they're, it's meaningless. I'm not valuable. I can be replaced. But that's not what Christ says. That's not the Christian message to us. You know... 
all religion is man wanting to become God. But Christianity is God becoming man. All religion is God as man finding a way to save himself. Workspace. But Christianity is about God becoming a man, saving us. And it cost him his blood. So we should be grateful. We should be thankful. As soon as you're grateful, I heard this phrase, you want to make the world a better place? Learn to be grateful. We've had hard times here in Calgary. I've had many friends who've lost their jobs. And they still don't have jobs. I haven't lost mine. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I'm not worthy. There were good people let go. I still have mine. I don't know why. I haven't gotten a pay raise. Now, I can be bitter about that. But hey, see, I'm not being grateful then, am I? Learn to be grateful. Learn to be grateful to our God and Savior. We can be confident. Huh, five minutes. Four pages. We can be, learn to be confident because he tells us. He says, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith is in God. So we can go before God and say, God, I know you love me because you sent Christ to save me. So we can have confidence in him. And remember this. It is not our plans for God in our life. It is our life in God's plan. You see the difference? As soon as you can think of it from that way, it's, it's the Hebrew writer says, you know, fix your eyes on Christ so that you can run the race set before you with perseverance. The life you have before you, God has ordained for you to go through. Now you make those decisions, but he already knows that. He placed you in that. And what he did was he said, this is the life I want for you to mold you into the image of my son, Jesus Christ. You are to run it with perseverance. Hold the course. Don't quit. Be faithful. And First Peter tells us why. Because we have a beautiful inheritance waiting for us. And in closing, he says, we're to love one another. Well, they'll know us by our love, it tells us. So just in closing here, I will read the rest of the scriptures allotted to me. It says, now, now you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Now, got to pause there. Because what that points out to you, remember, God foreknew. He chose us before the beginning of time. And yet here, he's saying, now that you have purified yourselves according to your obeying of the truth. That's our aspect of the sanctification that we're bringing into this. We are to choose to obey the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers and you love one another deeply from the heart. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, for a living and enduring word. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the grass of the field. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God will stay forever. The Lord will stay forever. And this is the word that is preached to you. This is what you're hearing, this word, this seed that grows inside you. And there's that word, therefore. What's Peter telling them? Because you have the seed, this hope of eternal life inside you. He says, therefore, rid yourselves. 
Now, what is that? Self-control. Rid yourself of malice. Malice is wanting to get even with people. Deceit. You know, the tongue is more deceitful than anything. Tell the truth. Hypocrisy. Jesus hates hypocrites. He pronounced seven woes on the Pharisees, right? Woe to you, Pharisees and scribes. Don't be a hypocrite. Envy, slander. Notice, these things here are subtle. He doesn't say don't kill, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery. Those are obvious. These are the motivations behind it. Peter's talking about the heart. These are subtle. We're to change our drivers, our motivations. And he says, crave the pure and spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation now that you know and have tasted that the Lord is good. So we're to grow in our salvation. This is a sanctification process that we grow, that we learn. And so the one thing that I would offer here, if there's anything that you take away, read the scripture. Read this scripture. You don't need to be reading commentaries. They'll come. There will come a point in time when you'll need to do that. But read the scriptures. Why do I say that? Because this is the word. This is the seed that's planted inside you. If it sits on a bookshelf and you never read it, it won't grow. You can resist it. You can suppress it. You know, Paul tells us that in unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. And so, how long do you think it takes to read First Peter? 15 minutes. You know, Titus has three chapters, 60 some odd verses. It takes six minutes. Six minutes, that's all it takes. You can read all the epistles in less than 20. Galatians takes 18. How do I know this? I did it. I timed myself. So I encourage you, read it. Read it. And you will grow in your knowledge. There will come a time to, to read commentaries. And there will come a time to talk to others and watch YouTube videos and all that. But how do you know they're telling you the truth? Unless you, this was not written for sophisticates. It was written for the common person. And really, most behaviors out there, the answers are already true. It's easy to know what's right and wrong. What's hard is, what do we want? And so Peter ends by saying, follow Christ. You have been blessed. You have an inheritance kept for you in heaven. Exercise self-control and be grateful. My time is out. Thank you.